Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you're seated, please turn your Bible to the book of uh, Psalms. The book of Psalms. Today we're going to be uh, going over Psalm 22. Our, this is the beginning of our missions month. If uh, you joined us a bit late, it is the start of our missions month. For, so for uh, this week and the next three weeks, these four weeks all through March, we dedicate to uh, the, the vis- God's vision for missions, what he has set forth inside of the Bible, and, um, and our own place inside of it. And so uh, today I'm going to be taking us through our theme verse, which will be in Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. And over the next few weeks, uh, we have the chance to hear from Dr. Dominic Aquila next week. The week after that, um, our friend Frank Sindler will be in town. And the week after that, um, the last week of March, our friend Pastor, uh, Pastor Shin, and he'll be uh, bringing our missions month to a close. Um, but today we want to look at our missions theme. So that brings us to Psalm 22. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles on this back bookshelf here. encourage you to pick one up and follow along with us any week that you come. You can pick one up now um, and just follow along inside a copy of God's Word with us. So this is Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. Hear the word of the Lord. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this, we ask that you would help us to get your heart. Your heart for the nations, your heart for the world, your heart even uh, for missions. God, as we look in this, Father, draw our heart closer to yours. Father, that we may know your love and be able to express that in the world. Teach us as we come into your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there has been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about revival. Um, Some of you have heard in the news of something called the Asbury Revival, Asbury University in Kentucky, and and students um, gathering for um, a worship service and then, um, you know, not leaving that, but ending up um, staying hours and hours and even overnight in times of worship of uh, singing, of, of hearing God's word, at times of repentance, also uh, times of prayer and devotion to, to God. And now, you know, we don't know what will ever happen of that. We don't know how it'll grow or will it or any of those things. Those things are part of the work of the Holy Spirit inside of a nation and our people. But we can certainly hope that something does, you know, because we see the need of our nation we see the need of coming generations, of the hope of the gospel, and a hope that it is truly Jesus Christ who would root and ground a person in their hope for the future. Now, there are a number of passages in the Bible that talk about revival like that. Some of them can be spoken about local things. Something can be spoken about personal things. Uh, but we even see in passages like, we're, like in our theme verse for this missions month, worldwide revival. That's where Psalm 22, 27 gives us this picture of a worldwide revival, a time when many people, it talks about the families of the nations, would be awakened to the gospel of Jesus Christ where they turn to God and they find newness of life. So this is our theme. It's a vision. It's a prayer for us, for God's work among people throughout the world. We want to see people turn back to their creator. We want to see people to know God as their redeemer. 
to know of his love, the joy of the gospel, the purpose, to know repentance and faith, which brings eternal life. Now, so what does it take for that to happen? Well, let's look at a few words out of Psalm 22, 27, and we'll see what it takes. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. the first word I want to point out is the word remember. Spiritual awakening takes place when people remember something. Something has been lost. Something has been forgotten. And somehow, the people remember something. And because of that, they turn to the Lord. So something is remembered. That turns, points to our second word, and that's the word turn. You see that in verse 27? They turn to the Lord. The idea of turn is people are going one direction, uh, doing one sort of thing, and for some reason, they change direction. And it really is a picture for us of repentance, of turning away from rebellion against God, turning away from sin, and turning to God in repentance, and turning in faith. Instead of being alienated with God, from God, there is fellowship and walking together with God, knowing God and knowing the life that he offers. All right, so we see the word remember, we see the word turn. A third word I want to highlight is the word worship. Worship. Because whatever the families of the nations were doing before, we see once remembrance and turning takes place, what are they doing? There's worship. And not just worship like here in a, in a singing time, but worship of all of life. Worship as a character of our life, that whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It is a life of worship. Now, the vision of these three words taking place, remember, turning, and worship, the vision for who experiences this is, is expansive. You know, it talks about the families of the nations, talking about peoples from all around the earth. You know, we can see an image of them as the flags were brought in today. These are some of the families of the nations who, were, um, who came in, in that processional today. Um, we see families of nations include rich and the poor nations, includes those who are in relative bondage or oppression and those who are free from every skin color, from every language of people. You know, the vision is that the families of the nation would experience the awakening and revival that restores them to God. As I was reading verse 27, which the theme verse, again, that our missions committee picked out, you know, it really pointed to me as an Old Testament picture of the New Testament's Great Commission. You know the Great Commission. You should know the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. If you don't, it's a good one to memorize to be sure that you know it. Because these are Jesus' last words before he goes into heaven. He died on the cross. He had been in the tomb for three days. He'd risen from the dead. He'd spoken with his disciples for 40 days. And before he goes into heaven, what does he tell them? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? A command to make disciples of all nations. All nations meaning all ethnic groups inside of the whole world. And that's a work that God gives to us as well. But there's also a hope that's connected with this command. And there's a hope that's connected with Psalm 22, 27. And that's the hope that the nations will worship the Lord. That optimism comes from uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. This is a picture of heaven. It's a picture of what's to come. Um, 
it's a little, it's like the, 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 this, the, um, the, the screen is pulled back, the curtains are pulled back, and we get a picture of what happens in glory. And you see all the families of the nations gathering together for worship. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you see this ethnic diversity gathered together, the unity of worship brought together under the one person who could unite and bring them together, that is Jesus Christ. What a picture of heaven, what a picture of glory, a picture of the fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, of Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the families of the nations gathered together in worship. Now, so that brings up the question which I want to address the rest of our time with is that how do you get people who are not worshiping the Lord to worship the Lord? How do you get a people who are going one direction and to turn and to go in a different direction? And how do you get people who've forgotten something to remember something? And that's really what the rest of Psalm 22 does. Psalm 22, 27, that's the result of a lot of other things that have taken place by this. In Psalm 22, something else happens before revival takes place. What is that thing? What is that thing that leads to the spiritual awakening of the nations? What is it that leads the families of the nations to worship the Lord? And the answer that we see in Psalm 22 is suffering. It's suffering. The only way the world would be restored, renewed, would be through the suffering of God's servant, who would take away sin. Ultimately, that that servant would suffer, but God would deliver him through that suffering into a place of glory, and people would praise God. Who has suffered more than Jesus Christ? Today, as we look through Psalm 22, and we'll look quickly at it, we remember what Jesus experienced as a suffering servant, but we also remember that, Jesus, that God delivered Jesus through that suffering in the resurrection from the dead. But where we're going to end up is this. It's also important for us to remember that if we're going to see others to know the joys and the benefits of knowing God, is that we'll experience our own level of discomfort, maybe of suffering, of difficulty, of setting aside some privileges that we have, some opportunities that we have, so that greater good may take place, that we may see people to know Christ. So that's where we want to end up today. Because this is a month, this missions month, a time of personal commitment. It's time for us to seek the Lord. To offer ourselves to the Lord and say, Lord, would you use me? All right, so let's look at this together. First, we want to see the experience of the suffering servant. Now, there's some debate about the original context of Psalm 22. If you read the title line there, it says it's a Psalm of David. Written by King David, but if you know the timeline of David and you try to compare what's written in here with any specific events in his life, it's really hard to line it up with any one thing. And because that, people say that this psalm is a purely prophetic psalm. It's purely messianic. It's purely about Jesus who's yet to come, and it doesn't have any connection with the life and experience of of King David himself as he writes this. Now, I like John Calvin's take on this better. Um, John Calvin says that in this psalm, David gives a poetic summarization of the suffering that he experienced when when being persecuted by King Saul. 
describes this period of time after God had anointed him to be king, but King Saul was still on the throne, and David, um, under that hot jealousy of King Saul, is running for his life, going through difficulty, going through suffering, having the rejection of, of others inside the kingdom, and he, he's fleeing. But after that suffering was over, what does he do? He brings in a golden age for the nation of Israel. So I think it describes actual events as understand, understood by King David's perspective in a poetic way. But it is also a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm in this is that it directly applies to the person of Jesus Christ and his life. As much as it applies to King David, it so much more applies to Jesus who is yet to come over a thousand years later. And that shows up in verse one more than anywhere else. Let's look at verses one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now where else have you heard these words? You know, you, you should know them from Jesus in his own death upon the cross. It's recorded in Matthew 27. It's also recorded in, Ma- in Mark chapter 15. We have a slide for Mark 15, starting in verse 22, just remembering Jesus' life. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And then while he's being crucified, uh, this is what we see in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This gives a, a hint of what Jesus is thinking about when he's dying there on the cross. He's thinking about Psalm 22. Really, he's thinking about all of it. He, he references it here. And he especially thinks about this abandonment of God as he, hungs on the, as he hangs on the cross. As Jesus, as Jesus was crucified on the cross, the suffering that he endured at the hands of wicked men, which was much less than the suffering which he endured because of the distance of God from him. Why the distance of God? The Bible tells us what's happening there. He tells us in Romans 8.3, other passages like 8.3, and that in Jesus' death, On the cross, God places the sins of his people upon Jesus and condemns that sin. Look at verse 8, Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's Jesus, his death on the cross. God is condemning sin as he perishes there. Jesus experienced the condemnation of God. He knew the suffering of God's abandoning him, of turning his back on him, and God's wrath against sin. And any time that we suffer, that God, we know God can feel very distant. King David experienced it. King Jesus experienced it. And you may experience it when you suffer. Well, what do we do? What do we do at that point? Let's look at what David does here, uh, that even despite this experience of feeling abandoned by God, he knows that he is, and so he prays. He calls out to God. He knows that he can trust in God. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
And if you look at these next verses, it's almost like he's really wrestling with his hope in God versus what people say. People say all kinds of lies about him. They even ridicule his faith, but he's still, you know, wrestling with what they say, with what what God says about him. Look at verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him and let him rescue him for he delights in him, right? So you see the, the uh, ridicule of the people. But again, what does he do in verse 9? He, he just puts his attention back and trusts in God. Verse 9, you are he who took me from the womb. God, you made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So there's this back and forth that's taking place. And these people around him, they're, they're the powerful threat to him, right? Powerful threat to his life. Jesus was crucified by the religious leaders in this. In his own experience, verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. How does that kind of oppression affect a person? You can look down at verse uh, 14, how he experiences it. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. You know, it's such an expression of what people experience in death, and even in crucifixion. We'll get that in a minute. But the experience of supreme suffering in this part of his life. Now, if you look at verses 16 through 18, you really see the prophetic messianic part of it. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, what a description of what Jesus himself experienced. You know, that's why we call it a messianic psalm. That though this was written over a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion, it describes the piercing of his hands and feet. One of the reasons why people think this really couldn't be about David is, or David's time is because people didn't crucify others during that time. We don't know how it applies to David's life. But we do know how it applied to Jesus' life. And it's described so vividly here over a thousand years before it actually happened. We even see the description of the gambling over his clothing uh, by those who crucified him. You know, these sort of uh, fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, these sort of statements are one of the reasons why we trust the Bible as a divinely inspired book. It tells events that happened, uh, you know, years before they happened. And the way they're fulfilled, fulfilled is amazing. So, so there you have, that, that's the suffering server, verses 1 through 18. But we want to go back to why he suffered. King David suffered so he could bring about a good, a just, and an orderly government to Israel. He wanted one that worshipped the Lord. King Saul had turned the people away from God. He was turning away from God. But David wanted Israel to know the Lord. And he had two choices if he was, if he was going to do that. One is that he could start a civil war, commit many atrocities, and he could, and, and, and see how that turned out. Or the second option was to patiently wait, enduring suffering, 
trusting God to deliver him. And as a result, in the end, he waited on the Lord, waited on God's deliverance, and he saw that God's good for his nation. But even more than David, we see among Jesus, he suffered so that he could save his people. He went through crucifixion because he loves his people. He wanted to take their sins away. He wanted to gather together people of his own. He wanted to free them of guilt and of shame and to reconcile them to their God. He suffered to move them away from rebellion from God and to know of his love instead. So that's a reason for the experience of the suffering they go through. Well, let's look to verses 19 through 21 where we see prayer and we see deliverance. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. You see him going back to prayer, right? He's going back to prayer in the midst of his suffering. He calls out to the Lord. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Even though he feels that God has abandoned him, he never gives up hope. He keeps on praying and asking God to save him. Remember, Jesus takes this psalm on his lips when he's there on the cross. Meaning that he has the whole psalm in mind. Even this prayer, even the prayer of deliverance from his enemies. But the turn of the psalm comes there at the end of verse 21. If you notice, I didn't read every line. And because you see this one line that's taken after the, he prays, asks for deliverance, and then one line you see how God delivers. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. We see the past tenses there. And so we see the psalm speaks a lot about the suffering servant, and it speaks a lot on the inside about the results of deliverance. But here in this one line, just one line, it references the deliverance itself. But that's the pivot point that makes all the difference, isn't it? That's the, the, that's the pivot where uh, King David is rescued from King Saul and King Saul dies. And so David has been running all of his life and now he becomes king. And he turns his nation towards Christ. It's the pivot where Jesus, though he was crucified, though he was put inside of a tomb, he rises from the dead. It's the pivot point that makes all the difference where God delivers him from death so that he could deliver us through Christ's death. The prayer, God's answer, that's the pivot point. It's for David, it's for Christ, but it's also for us. That's why prayer is so important. After much suffering, as we may endure in our lives, wherever it comes from, if we don't pray, you know, we don't look to that pivot. We give up hope in that pivot. But prayer is our hope that there is a pivot, which points us to a place of redemption, a place of deliverance, whatever suffering that we may be experiencing. All right, so that's going to lead to our third point. And the third point is the result. Sorry, in verse 22. What comes next after that? What comes next for him is he's going to start telling people about the wonderful deliverance of God. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. That's what David did. Right? He becomes king, and we see the nation enter into a time of spiritual renewal and worship. That's his pers- this is his perspective after the time of suffering is finished. It's the perspective of, of that Revelation chapter 7 for us. 
Right? When we see all the families and nations gathered together in worship. How does a delivered person lead others to worship God? In part, because the suffering servant of God reminds them that God hears from suffering people. That God is the deliverer of those who suffer. That's what verse 24 shows us. For he, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David knew that God heard him. God listened to Jesus. And as you suffer, and as you pray, you know that God hears you as well. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 gives us another picture of this, how God comforts us so that then we can be a comforter to others. Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as God comforts, suffers, those who know his comfort can though therefore go out and comfort other sufferers, the afflicted. That's what we see happening in Psalm 22. Look at the deliverance of God with me. Look at what God has done. Psalm 22, 25 goes on. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows will, I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This is David's vow. He would help the afflicted. Jesus came to, to bring the afflicted into heaven. I mean, this is good news of, of God's kingdom. And with his hope of deliverance from suffering, with the comfort it brings to us that God is with us, and with the knowledge that Jesus came to deliver the afflicted, then we come finally to our theme verse. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is what leads to worship. It's where the nations recognize the Lord as king. They recognize he is the one who has made us. He is the one who has a right um, to give us laws and rules to direct our steps. We're called to submit to him. But we also see his love. His love in the gospel. His love in redemption. And we know of his heart towards his people. If you look at verse 29 through 30, we see everyone, both the wealthy and the poor, coming to him in worship. All the prosperous of the earth, it says, eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, the coming generation, that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I love those last five words, that he has done it. You know, that's the, the final reminder that God has accomplished everything needed for salvation. You remember what Jesus said on the cross? His last words before he died? He said, it is finished. Right? This is the Old Testament's, it is finished. He has done it. It is accomplished. Salvation is accomplished, applied through the work of Jesus Christ. In that one event, God defeated sin. God defeated death, evil, and the devil. That one act on the cross. So let's look at how this applies then to us as we consider Missions Month. As we see in this passage, the pattern of turning people 
to God starts with the desire for people to know the goodness of God, to know of his love, his glory, his justice, his place of a king. That was the heart of David. It's the heart of Christ. But to get there, the servant of God must go through suffering or difficulty that he must pray and hope for deliverance before ultimately leading the people to worship God. So four words there, they're important. Desire, difficulty, deliverance. Those are easy, right? All D words. But my fourth one isn't a D. It's worship. Desire, difficulty, deliverance, and worship. And we see the flow that goes there. Starts with a desire to see people know Jesus. If you are in Christ today, you know uh, the deliverance of God from sin. You know the weight of sin. You know the consequence of sin. And you know the joy of, 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 of forgiveness. You know of his love. You have a renewed purpose in following him. And you know he's the only way of forgiveness. We want others to know that. That's a desire that wells up within the people of God. The second word is difficulty. While our suffering will never save us or anyone else, that we will purposely enter discomfort so that other people can experience the blessing of God for themselves. It really is a Christian way of understanding life. It's what Jesus did, right? Jesus willingly entered suffering so that we could know God. If he didn't enter into that, we never would have been saved. King David willingly entered suffering, coming under persecution from Saul, so he could lead Israel back to the Lord. Or we could look at uh, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as he talks about himself in Colossians 1.24, he says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So you see the suffering he's enduring, right? And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church. So the Apostle Paul is talking about his willingly entering into suffering so he could be a blessing to the church. He's following in the pattern. He's following the steps of Christ himself so people can know Jesus. Now he uses this term in there, which is, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's an interesting statement. Is he saying there is somehow Jesus didn't, accomplish everything needed for forgiveness of sins, and now he needed to go in and, and finish up the job? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying there is that Jesus is being, you know, in a human body, a human person, a human being, could only be in one place at a time. And he focused his energies on Israel, Jerusalem, and, and that area. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, I'm filling up his afflictions by going out to the ends of the world. That where I go to make Christ known, I may have to suffer just as to make God known in Israel. Jesus had to suffer. He's continuing that work. And that work has continued through time. The desire to help people know God has led them into difficulty, whether it's the rejection of friends, families, and neighbors, maybe even martyrdom. There's difficulty in the work. But desire is there. Because we know that the work of missions is not finished. There are over 3.3 billion unreached people in the world today. You know, 3.3 billion unreached people in the world today. That means people who have no access to a church. 
you know, effective access to a church. There are 700, or I'm sorry, there are 7,425 unreached people groups in the world. So how many unreached people groups, groups without a church, an indigenous church, 7,425. You know, those are the families of the nations as we think about our own missions theme. So there's still lots of, of work to do. We want them to know Jesus. Just as the flags come in, Christ at the head of them, we want Christ to be the head of the nations. And that's a vision that's led missionaries to leave their comfortable lives to go overseas. It's what led William Carey and his wife, his family, to leave their homes to go into India. They became the, modern, they became the founders of the modern mission movement. William Carey, and even though they suffered much, God sustained their work. By the time he died, they saw about 700 converts in India, but really starting, what is the modern missions movement? The love of the family of the nations moved John G. Patton to move in with the cannibalistic people of the New Hebrides so they can know Jesus. So he delivered, God delivered him through this time with cannibals to see them converted. Desire for the nations to follow Jesus is what led John and Betty uh, Stam to minister in China in the early 1900s, only to be martyred for their faith in the Boxer Uprising. Even then, though, through their death, that God delivered them into glory and brought about a number of conversions and inspired a number of people to enter into the missions movement. Even among ourselves, we see John and Olya Powell, our friends and missionaries, going into Ukraine, a war-torn place to help people to know Christ, or Oscar and Allison Jordan, you know, uprooting where they are to go into hurricane or um, earthquake-ravaged areas in Turkey to help make Christ known. We want others to know Christ. We want others to know Jesus. Behind each of these missionaries and others, there were churches, there were believers who wanted to see Christ known as well. They may not have got gone, but they were critical in the support of these and others to go and to make Christ known among the unreached people of the world. And that's our role. That's our role as a congregation. We look for the joy of God's growing kingdom as we purposely enter into difficulty, as we believe that God will deliver us through it in raising up a worshiping people. So how do we do it? The first thing we see is the raising up of our desire. That's what this month is about for us, right? We want, you know, we want to see what God is doing around the world. And we want to be reminded of the need of the gospel to people in the world. We want to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ alone brings reconciliation with God. And so when we deal with our missions conference, whether it's our morning service, our combined Sunday school classes, our missions festivals, our evening service, our Sunday... Um, our, our mission's banquet, these are times for us to come along and see what is God doing and to pray, God, raise up our hearts so we may see your mighty work and hunger after that. But it's also a time of personal commitment. You know, that leads us to my second word again. Remember desire, the second word is difficulty, right? And so what, what is it that we, what is it God is calling us to do as a congregation? What is it God is calling us to as individuals? How is it that we need to ask the Lord to revive us in seeking him? You know, that could be the faith promise. You know, inside of your bulletin, there was a faith promise brochure. There was a faith promise commitment card. You probably received one inside the mail uh, this week 
um, as well, because it is a time of commitment for us. You know, 100% of what is given, what is committed to that, um, missions goes to missions either locally or around the world. To make Christ known. You know, and I know this congregation has been wonderful in its sacrifice in order to make Christ known. Setting aside things that, that, um, that the world may want and have, but, but this congregation has said year after year, we want to make Christ known to the edges of the world. And our faith promise goes, and it supports that work. But we know that it's a commitment. We know there's a difficulty and challenge to it. And it's a challenge we challenge all people to, no matter how young you are, to consider this place, your place in missions. Come on Saturday night to our missions banquet, and you'll hear how God uses even that one little dollar that a child may commit to building his kingdom and to... Um, and to seeing his own place inside of the building of God's kingdom. I just encourage you to come Saturday night and to hear that story. But some of that difficulty might mean going on a trip. Maybe it's a short-term trip. As we think about our young people, you know, my encouragement for our young people is, is to spend a week, a month, and a year. You know, while you're in high school, we have great trips. You can go overseas for a week. It was early years of college, but, you know, sometime during that college time, could you spend a month? A summer, a summer break, going to do an internship somewhere to make Christ known. And after you graduate, you know, would you consider before you start that career, you know, spending a year overseas? You know, you know, is there a challenge to that? Of course there is. Is there a risk to it? Does it make you nervous? Yeah, of course it can. You know, but we have this promise that we're coming right alongside the heart of God in this, and we're trusting in God's provision in it. And so we pray. We pray trusting God's provision. And we look for the fruit of it in the worship of the, worship of the nations as the families of the nations come behind and they worship and they seek him. So these are things we get our mind on. We, 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 we encourage one another in and that's what our missions month is for us, to see what God is doing around the world, to encourage those who are doing it and encourage one another to see the importance of it. But behind all of it, there is a savior who suffered to give us uh, eternal life, to share with us the joy of the Lord, to show us his love. We want his name to spread. We want the gospel to be known. We want the families of the nations to worship his name. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Jesus did so much to bring us into his kingdom. And as we look at this passage, we see so much of his suffering. It's described in such vivid detail that I haven't even been able to go into. But it's there. Others have given greatly so that we could be here worshiping you, Lord, and we rejoice. We give you thanks for that. Help us, O oh Lord, to see what it will take for the nations to know Jesus, to see the gospel spread where there is none, whether it's within our own family, whether it's for coworkers, whether it's with our neighbors, or the unreached people group across the world. Father, we want to see the gospel spread to where, there is, where the gospel is not known. And we ask you, Lord, give us the courage to take on some of the discomfort that's required to help the nations hear and believe this good news. God, would you direct our missions month? God, would you direct our missions thinking for the whole year, not just this month, but for the whole year, and help each one of us to know how we can participate in your great work in the world. We ask you this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus invites us to the Lord's Supper.